Thank you, choir. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, hold your spot there. We're actually going to be there for three weeks starting today, so you can uh, keep that spot held there if you want to. Luke chapter 2 is where we'll be this Sunday, next Sunday, and then the following as well. So Luke chapter 2. Hey, I remember when I started... um, when I started here as pastor, the year was 2002. I started on Mother's Day that year, May. About four weeks later or so, about a month later, I was off on a mission trip uh, with our students at the time. And so uh, it had already been set up, obviously. I didn't plan a student ministry trip in four weeks. It had already been set up. And the students were going to Juarez, Mexico. And I remember um, not wanting to be out that Sunday since I had just started, uh, and I flew down a day later to meet that student team uh, there in Juarez, and so I preached here Sunday morning. Uh, we actually had one of the students who didn't make the trip pass out right about there, and uh, I thought, wow, this is going great. I've been here four weeks, and people are already passing out, so, uh, and so uh, she was okay, which was good. And so I actually flew down the next day. To meet the team. So I flew in El Paso, never been to El Paso, that don't, that's the only time. What I did learn is that El Paso is brown and El Paso has no trees. And so I uh, flew in El Paso, someone from the mission agency that we were working with met me uh, at the airport and uh, jumped in a van, crossed the border and uh, went into Juarez, Mexico, spent the next few days uh, serving a family down there, helping to build a house. Our team would come and just sort of pick up where the previous team had left off. And when we were done, the next team would come and continue. We would only uh, hope and assume that that uh, that house got finished, right? And so it was in El Paso that I was really struck. I'd been on a mission trip before. I'd been to Hungary. That was my second mission trip at the time. But I was struck by the contrast between two different types of lives there in Juarez. This picture was not taken by me, but it captures a scene that I vividly remember there in Juarez. It, it, it wasn't seeing um, uh, the power lines running through that city and uh, coat hangers draped over the top of those power lines with uh, extension cords attached to pirate electricity into the individual homes. It wasn't that scene. It wasn't the sound of what I thought was the ice cream truck, we're not in Kansas anymore, coming down the street. I thought, wow, that sounds like an ice cream truck. And it was not an ice cream truck. It was a propane tank truck coming down the street that I guess likes to sound like an ice cream truck. Got my hopes up and they were dashed in the rocks there in the city of Juarez. But it would be another scene that would be really emblazoned in my mind that I still remember today. And that scene was similar to this. And it was the contrast of standing in a part of Juarez with dirt and rocks and kids playing soccer barefoot in these dirt, dirt and rocks. And it was seeing those electrical cords on all the different sites of Juarez. And then looking across the Rio Grande from that area where I was surrounded by, by, by such poverty and looking across the river and seeing the El Paso skyline and the Wells Fargo building specifically they're towering above. And that struck me, and I still remember that scene today. And it's not vastly different than this actual picture of Juarez and the El Paso skyline as well. Life is filled with contrasts, isn't it? Somebody came up to me after the first service when I shared the same story, showed that same image, and they came up to me and said, you know what, you can drive through parts of our own city here and almost see that roadway become that same type of a divider where there's one life on one side of that road and there's such a stark contrast to life on the other side of that road. We can take that image down. We're reminded that life is full of contrasts, isn't it? 
Life is full of contrast. You, I remember going to the Philippines on one of my first trips with a, one of our teams years and years ago, and we're, I was riding on the back of a tricycle, which is a motorcycle with a sidecar, and uh, I was riding with one of the pastors there, I believe it was Pastor Johnny, and, uh, and we pulled off the... I actually were on a paved road at that time near Maria Aurora, and we pulled off, and uh, he came out of the little Sorry Sorry store, a little uh, somewhat of a convenience store, Philippine style, and he had a one-liter glass Coke bottle. And I thought, well, that doesn't look like Coca-Cola in that one-liter glass Coke bottle, and he walked over to the back of his motorcycle, and he poured it in. That's where the fuel was. And it was just sort of the way of life there. And I thought, well, that's much different than the way it is in our own country. I've been in Cuba, and you stand on any street corner in Cuba, whether it's in the little town uh, uh, near Guanahai where we are or whether it's in Havana, and, and you just see the 1940s roll past you. It's the way of life there. It's, it, it's life for them, and it's a stark contrast from where we are in this particular country, not better, not worse, just different. Right, we, could go to, we could go to Dubai, and I've never been to Dubai, and I don't expect I ever will, but you've probably seen pictures where they would say life is such a stark contrast to come here where we are. You've got such short buildings right in Dubai. Their buildings are 18 miles tall, right? and they, they sleep in pools of money, <laughs> or they bathe in pools of money and sleep in beds of currency. Right? It's just wealth and, and uh, more money than you know what to do with in Dubai. It's just such a stark contrast. You can't even fathom what it must be like in that particular region of the world. Life is full of contrast. But one of the things that I found over time is that at the heart of the matter, when you get down to the, to the level of the human heart, we really are not much different one from the other. You know, kids in Cuba still laugh at the same slapstick comedy as kids in a kindergarten class here on the island would laugh at. There's going to be a single mom in the Philippines whose husband walked out and she's, she's trying to raise two, three, four kids on her own. Her heart is going to break and she's going to struggle at the exact same level as that single mom who may live in a community right here in 31410 is going to struggle. There's no difference at the heart level. There's still money problems in Dubai that are just the same as the money problems of anybody living here in our own city. Hearts still break, dreams still fade, hopes still get dashed on the rocks of this life, right? Life is no different when you get to the level of the human heart. And where life is filled with contrasts, at the heart of the matter, it really is ultimately no different. So here's what we're doing through the month of December leading up to Christmas. This Sunday, next Sunday, and the next, we're starting a brand new series starting today called Those Days, These Days. Those days, these days. And, and, and it's in this series, it's going to be three parts. You, you've already covered, right? You're already here, right? You've already covered one third. You've got 33% of the series already covered. It's because you're here today. So come back next Sunday and the next. Bring somebody with you. And uh, we're going to look at this series, those days, these days. And we're going to look at this simple passage of Scripture, Luke chapter 2, which if you want to call it this, is probably the clearest version of the Christmas story that we have in all of literature, Right? Luke chapter 2, Matthew has a little bit to say about that first Christmas. New Testament writers have a little bit to say about that first Christmas. The prophets have something to say about that first Christmas. But it's really Luke chapter 2 that gives us the clearest, most detailed account of what that first Christmas looked like. And it's not going to call it the first Christmas, right? But we understand what it means. Luke gives us the best detail of that. And it's probably the most well-known passage of, of Scripture associated with Christmas. I'm, I'm curious, how many of you... During the Christmas season, on Christmas Eve or some other time, read Luke chapter 2 as somewhat of a tradition. I'm just curious. Any of you do that, right? Yeah, I mean, a lot of you. Nine o'clock service was just the same. 
And so Luke chapter 2 gives us this beautiful picture of the Christmas story, and yet there's this contrast. Just real quickly, look at Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Look at what Luke says when he speaks of this. He says, now in those days, and then he begins to describe for us all of the elements as they unfolded in that first Christmas. And there's this picture of what life was like in those days, but then there's a misconception for us today to where we say those days are so different than these days. I mean, throughout the church, really, throughout the world, there's this this very dangerous misconception that what happened back then doesn't really have much of a bearing on the way we live today. Because after all, in those days, I mean, those people were not like us. I mean, in those days, they weren't as smart as we are. In those days, they, don't, they didn't have the stuff that we have. In those days, they didn't have the life experiences that we have today. In those days, those were Bible people. They were just kind of like living in a little snow globe or something. They were like their own little bubble. They were their own category of people. They were, they were Bible people. I mean, those days are not these days. And there's a misconception that what happened back then in a different era with different people in a different land so far back in history, 2,000 years ago, this misconception says that stuff doesn't translate to my life. Man, I got a job, you say, that is just stressful, and I got demands, and I got bills, and I got relationship stuff going on, and I got money issues and health problems, and my insurance is just, you know, it's just all this red tape, and those days just don't translate to these days. Here's what I say, right? And, I, and, and you can disagree if you want, but, <clears throat> but I'm right. So here, here's, here's what I say. There, there is no more contemporary book than this. I mean, this book right here is more up to date than any other book that you will ever read. And just the fact that it separated those days between these days, just, just simply because there are 2,000 years between the two, or they live different lives in a different land, doesn't matter. Because the human heart is just the same. And it was the same for them as it is for us. And the issues they faced in those days are the same issues we face in these days. And the same remedy that God sent in those days is the same remedy that he applies these days. And so we're going to walk through Luke chapter 2. It's going to be enjoyable, man. I love Christmas. I'm like Adam. I forget which service he mentioned. If it was this one or the last, they all run together after a while for me. But I mean, he mentioned his Christmas trees and uh, decorations. All I mean, he loves Christmas. I love Christmas. My mom was a Christmas junkie, man. When I was a kid, I mean, she started decorating weeks and weeks and weeks before it all happened. I just, I love Christmas. I mean, most of you are probably just the same. And Luke chapter 2 is just an amazing passage of Scripture. So I'm really excited for these three weeks, today, next week, and the following, to, uh, to look in this, this wonderful chapter of Scripture and to break it down little by little as we move through. Some of you are really stressed out now because you realized after today we've only got two more Sundays till Christmas. So you're going to be okay. Um, but I feel for you. I'm sorry I had to break that break that news to you. So here, here's a little principle that I hope you'll, you'll um, jot down because it's going to be so important for us as we go through this series. And, and the, the principle is this, that what occurred in those days back then shapes how we live our lives in these days. And so if your tendency is to say, well, the Bible sort of spoke to then, I'll just sort of learn a little few things here and there along the way, little moral principles. No, 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 no. This is God's book written for us, and in what happened in those days, and what was spoken in those days, and what God wrote in those days has huge implications in how it shapes our lives in these days that we live in. So let's make that connection starting today. 
Luke chapter 2. Here's why this passage is so important. It's one of those mountain peak passages of Scripture that I would say exists in the Bible. All of them are important. All of them are equally important. Some passages of Scripture, to me at least, just seem to kind of rise up like a mountain uh, against, the, against the horizon. And this is one of those because in Luke chapter 2, we get to see the hinge on which the Christian faith swings. And it's not that Jesus had his beginning in Luke chapter 2. I want to be real clear with that. Some of you, maybe this is your first foray, right, into Christianity, into the church, into the Bible. And I want you to understand and be very clear that when we speak of Jesus coming or Jesus coming to earth or Jesus being born. This is not the beginning of Jesus, right? Jesus is God and he existed. He has existed without beginning and without end. But there was a point where God put on flesh and he came and he dwelt among us and he was born into this fallen world. Luke chapter 2 captures this. And so we talk about the birth of Jesus. It's not the beginning of Jesus. It's him making his entrance into this world. And the reason this passage is so incredibly important is because it is one of those hinge passages where all of Christianity swings. If God doesn't come for us, I mean, we don't have any hope. If he doesn't come for us in the first place, he can't die on our, in our place on a cross and he can't rise from the dead and pave the way for us to have our sins forgiven. I mean, this is a hinge, Luke chapter 2 is. It's a huge hinge on which the door of Christianity swings and it opens and it closes that God ultimately came for us. And so Luke captures for us what this looked like. Luke is an interesting figure in the Bible. He was a, I guess you could say, a contemporary in Jesus' day. He, he would have walked this earth the same time as Jesus. But Luke, there's no evidence that Luke actually knew Jesus when he was walking this earth. Luke comes on the scene later in the New Testament whenever the early church comes into existence and he begins to travel with a missionary by the name of Paul. And so when Luke set out to write his gospel, he didn't write it as an eyewitness. This is, this is important. It, Luke is not like out in the field with the shepherds when Jesus comes and the angels start singing. He's not like tucked away over near the shepherds like jotting all this down. All right, let me get this right. Yeah, they sang this song and there was like one, two, three, four, five. All right, there's like a ton of them here. He's not like writing it all down as it unfolds, right? He wasn't an eyewitness. He wasn't tucked away. There's no like photo of the manger scene and somewhere, you know, Luke's like tucked over like elf on the shelf or something. You know, he's not there. There's a reason he's not in the nativity scenes today because he wasn't there. He wasn't an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry. What Luke did, this is so important, is that Luke put together a gospel that bears his name with a purpose of writing a detailed account of the life and the ministry of Jesus. That's what he says in Luke 1. There was a gospel already written. More than likely, it was Mark. Mark put together his gospel account, all of it true, of the life and ministry of Jesus. It's, it's the shortest of the four gospels, but it wasn't chronological, Mark's account wasn't. What Luke did was, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he went and he gathered information, and he probably did interviews, and he conducted research. He, he says all that in Luke chapter 1 with the purpose of putting together an orderly, detailed account of the life and ministry of Jesus that was also chronological. Luke is a very easy gospel account to read, and it's all chronological. And he puts together this account for the purpose of, number one, showing what God looks like, number two, showing what we look like and our need for God, and then ultimately showing us how we can have a relationship with a God who's holy, even though we are far from it. And he puts it together in great detail. He was a physician, probably the only Gentile author 
of any of the books of the Old Testament. We don't know who wrote, from a human perspective, the book of Hebrews. My guess is probably a Hebrew, <laughs> right? So Luke would be the only writer in the New Testament that was not a Jew, responsible for the book of Luke and also the book of Acts. So let's jump in. Luke chapter 2, knowing a little bit of the backstory now, and let's start looking at this hinge on which your Christian faith, the Christian faith, ultimately swings and doing it in a context of what it looked like in those days and the implications of it for these days. We'll cover seven verses this morning. Next Sunday, we'll pick up in verse 8. But let's, uh, let's begin. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. So Luke writes, and he says, Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Luke does an interesting thing here in the second chapter of his gospel. You may not have picked up on it, but what Luke does is he puts a big fat bullseye on himself and he puts a big giant bullseye on his own credibility, and he puts a bullseye on this document that now bears his name, the Gospel of Luke. He puts a bullseye on all of that, himself, his own credibility, and his gospel, because what he does is he begins to name names, and he begins to name events. Those names would either strengthen this document that bears his name, or would discredit this document if it wasn't true. When Luke names a man named Caesar Augustus, who ruled as the leader of the Roman Empire from 27 BC to the year 14 AD, a reign of about 40 years, when he names him, when he names another leader, a governor, I believe it was, by the name of Quirinius, and when he names an event, a census that was taken, if any of that was not true, someone would have easily pointed it out, discredited him, kicked him to the curb, and his document wouldn't have lasted two years, much less 2,000 years. And so Luke, as, as detailed as he could be, puts us at a plot on the timeline of history, and he begins to name names. Let's bring the passage back up again and leave that up if we can. And he names the name of Caesar Augustus, and he names the name of Quirinius, and he mentions this census that was to be taken. This census was by decree, right? Somebody's phone is talking to me. All right, hopefully it's agreeing and not dis disagreeing with me. <laughs> That's not mine. That happened a few weeks ago in the 9 o'clock service. Hopefully it's not mine. And so he mentions this census that was, that was collected, and it was by decree. It would have been by imperial edict. You would have to obey this decree set forth by Caesar Augustus. And the decree was for this census to be collected of all the inhabited earth. 
The census would have been typically for two reasons. They were done about every 14 years in the Roman Empire. They were for two separate reasons. One reason was for military purposes. You would count for the sake of military uh, identification to know how much military potential you had. That would not have been the case here with the Jews because Jews were exempt from military service in the Roman Empire. But the other reason for for, for, uh, a census was for taxation purposes. This would have been the issue here. The Jews were being uh, subjected to the census so that they ultimately could be taxed. This was a big issue in the first century. You remember 30 years later in Jesus's ministry, I mean, some of the leaders come to him and say, hey, Jesus, so what do we do you know, with, with these taxes? Are you in favor of us paying taxes to Caesar or are you not? Remember, that was, a, that was a hot topic back then. It was a hot topic here when Jesus was born too. And so this, this, this decree is being put out by the leader of the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus, that you as a Jew have to go back to your ancestral home so that you can be counted as part of this census. And as a result of that then, Joseph, who was from the lineage of David, would go back to the city of Bethlehem. Here's a cool little thing. This is my geek moment for the morning. Hopefully only one, maybe more. The, the, the word Bethlehem in the Hebrew language means house of bread. Right? Jesus would identify himself in the book of John as the bread of life. How cool it is in God's grand plan and his design that the bread of life would be born in the house of bread. I don't know if that does much for you. Maybe you're still half asleep or you're thinking of, I wish Chick-fil-A was open on Sundays. Right? But for me, that just gets me fired up. man. That's just really, really cool that the bread of life would be born in a city titled the house of bread. And so, so Joseph, with his uh, engaged to be wife, this was so binding it would have required a divorce proceeding to, to end this betrothal, this engagement. Joseph and Mary now, they travel 80 miles from Nazareth, uh, Nazareth to Bethlehem. Certainly it wouldn't have been an easy journey. Certainly there would have been struggles along the way. And it just reminds us of a very simple truth that comes right out of Luke chapter 2. That in those days, circumstances seemed out of control. In those days, back in Luke 2, circumstances seemed so incredibly out of control. Imagine what it must have been like. Take, Take yourself out of the Bible as one reading it. On, as words on a page, put yourself in the story for just a second, all right? Put yourself in the midst of that story. How out of control do you think the circumstances would have seemed to Mary, who is expecting to deliver at some point fairly soon, to have to uproot from the city where she is living and to travel 80 miles from that home to another city that we have no evidence that she had ever even been there before? Right? The circumstance changed for her that she's having to uproot, leave home by, by, by decree of the Roman government, right? The government's doing this, right? I can't believe the government's doing all this stuff, right? Making me have to leave from where I live, and don't they know that I'm expecting? And i got to travel 80 miles. Hello, when's the next train leave Nazareth? Sorry, Mary, no train. Well, let's just take a donkey. That's what I thought, right? Let's think about Joseph for a second. Let's put ourselves in his shoes. He was a carpenter by trade. More than likely, his father was a carpenter. More than likely, his grandfather was a carpenter. More than likely, in Nazareth somewhere, he had a shop, or at least a hub, a central place where his work was done because they worked in the Bible days, right? Those days involved employment. Those days involved starving if you didn't have money to buy food. Not vastly different than these days. 
And so Joseph now, by decree of the government, is having to uproot from his livelihood. And I doubt he had a mobile carpentry unit to carry with him. And he's having to just somehow trust that God's going to provide for the funds, provide for his income, provide for sustenance as he leaves his hometown, as he leaves his, his, his family business, and as he leaves all of that behind to just travel for only the Lord knows how long. And is there going to be red tape when we get there? Are, are there going to be snags along the way? Are we going to have to stay longer than we're supposed to? I mean, how long is this going to take? And, and, and everywhere you looked, it seemed there were circumstances that were just swirling out of control. In those days, circumstances seemed out of control. You know what? In these days, circumstances often still feel out of control. And some of you know that better, better than you did a year ago, Right? This time last year, you were healthier. This time last year, you had somebody at the table who's not going to be at the table this year. Last year, you had a different job. You had a better job. You had a job that provided. Last year, you lived in a different neighborhood. Last year, you lived in a different city. Last year, you had some stuff. Those days, circumstances seemed out of control. And you know what? Many times in these days, they do too. Luke continues, verse 6. He picks up the story. While they were there, Mary and Joseph, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. Mary and Joseph would have more children. Right? We see that later in one of the gospel accounts. None of them would be God, only Jesus. <laughs> Imagine how the rest of them felt. <laughs> That's kind of hard to live up to. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths, right? Swaddling clothes like most moms would do today. And she laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. You know, when it mentions that they laid him in a manger, if you've been in church much at all, you've heard all the different explanations of what that manger may have been. Some say the manger was almost like a carved out, hewn into the side of a rock hill, right? Just sort of a, uh, just a, a carved out area to provide safety, shelter from the elements. Maybe that's what it was. More than likely, it, it was either an enclosure for animals or it was an actual feeding trough for animals, which obviously the modern nativity scenes show it as just kind of a feeding trough, a manger. And, and how ironic, you know, we just did a series recently here in our church uh, on the names of God. And if you remember some of those names, one of those names is Elohim, creator, right? Uh, it's the fourth word of the of the, of the whole entire Bible. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created. Another one of those names is Adonai, Lord, Master. Uh, uh, he is owner of everything. Another name for God is Yahweh. He's the preexistent God without beginning, without end. He's totally independent of his creation. He does not need us at all. How ironic that that God who came and put on flesh and blood, not to begin, but to ultimately be born and make his entrance into this world, that he was laid in, 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 in a feeding trough or, or, or laid in an closure where, where animals would be. I mean, how ironic that is. I mean, you talk about a contrast 
And yet Luke tells us that when the days came that, that Jesus would be born and the circumstances seemed out of control. I mean, everything was swirling, and probably there was very little peace to be experienced. And, and there was just the, just the sense of, uh, of uh, just living on the edge and, 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 and fear and anxiety and all of that. And when Jesus was born and he's placed in this manger, it reminds us that in those days, in those days, the unexpected became reality. I mean, Mary probably didn't expect great. You know, I'm not in my hometown. I'm in another city. And it's all so, so new and, and big and the hustle and the bustle. I mean, there are people passing through Bethlehem. I mean, store uh, owners were making major money probably, right? Because everybody's obeying this decree and there are so many people in this town. And there Mary is, this probably a teenage girl basically married, I mean, literally betrothed, engaged to, to Joseph. And, and suddenly the time comes to give birth. And she's in, a, she's in a stable, for goodness sakes. I mean, the unexpected became reality. I mean, they go to, the, to this inn, and they go knock on the door. You can almost picture, I mean, this, this little Jewish couple. I mean, Joseph, worn hands from a carpenter, probably very physically strong, and he's there with this late teens, you know, uh, uh, young lady who's ready to give birth, and the poor innkeeper. I mean, he's been hung out to dry in every church play for 2,000 years. I mean, I mean you, just, <clears throat> you just find the grumpiest guy in the church and give him the part. You know, it's like, no room, wham. You know, I mean, my... Apologies if you've ever served as that in your church play. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, he probably wasn't a mean guy. I mean, there, everybody's in Bethlehem. I mean, hello, we need a room. Sorry. I mean, we're all booked up, but let me show a little grace. I mean, we've got this, we got this, we got a barn out back. It's not much. But it's yours. <laughs> and in those days when the unexpected became reality you know what, in these days, what we sometimes don't expect becomes reality too. And sometimes that's really, really good. We get a blessing dropped in our lap that we never saw coming. We get a tax refund, right? We get to buy furniture or something. Somebody gives us something that we didn't see coming, you know, or you meet that special person and it's like, hey, wow, this friendship, this relationship that I didn't see coming. Sometimes that unexpected that becomes reality is really good, but sometimes that unexpected that becomes reality is, is everything but. And sometimes it's an incredible challenge and sometimes life changes. In those days, the unexpected became reality. In these days, that still seems to happen. The joy that was once there gets replaced with hopelessness. You know, it's in verse 7 that we'll pause in the story. We'll pick up verse 8 next Sunday. But where Luke pauses, I just want to say that God doesn't. Because in those days, God was working His perfect plan. That even in the midst of circumstances that change, even though in the sense where the unexpected was becoming reality and it wasn't real comfortable, that in those days God was also working a very beautiful plan. Look at what the prophet Micah says. You don't have to turn there, but Micah, who lived 750 years roughly before Jesus, look at what he says. He's a prophet, and he spoke to this day that Luke would write of, and he says, As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, which is just simply another way of referring to the city of Bethlehem, 
Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This would be a messianic prophecy pointing to the events that ultimately unfolded in the city of Bethlehem in Luke 2, where Jesus, God, was making his entrance as a person into this world. The Apostle Paul would write a letter to the believers in the region of Galatia, and he would describe all of those circumstances. God was working his plan. Look at what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4. He says, when the fullness of the time came, when everything had come to a head, when it was just the right time, from God's perspective, right, he's got one hand kind of on the timer, one eye on the clock, right? And when it, the fullness of time came, God the Father said, now's the time, now's when we go. And he sent his son. Paul says, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, that's Mary, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. It was all a part of this grand plan that in those days, God is working his plan to come himself to send his son into this fallen world to ultimately take a cross in our place and to rise again from the dead so that in God's grand scheme of things, we do not have to live without hope and we do not have to die forever. That we ultimately can have a relationship with him through Jesus and be adopted into his family. Are you kidding me? Adopted into his family to be, to be in relationship with God forever and ever and ever. And in those days, God was working his mighty and his perfect and his master plan. Let me tell you, in these days, he's still doing just the same. When I was a little kid and I was eight, nine years old and my mom shared with me the message of the gospel and I went downstairs and I went in my backyard and I nailed as a little kid and uh, knelt down and I, and I prayed and gave my life to Jesus the best that I could, right? And I turned for myself and I invited him to forgive me and take over because I wanted a relationship with him. I wanted to go to heaven. When I did that, listen, God was working his master plan. He was working it out, not just in those days, man. He was working it that day, all those years ago friend of mine I just heard of recently that prayed, gave his life to Christ, and ultimately saw change immediately begin to come in his life. God was working that plan, not just in those days, in these days. This morning we baptized Crystal Davis. Jason baptized her, shared the story of how she's been coming here, was raised learning about church and all those details, but it was only in these recent weeks that she nailed it down, drew a line in the sand, made a decision, and said, you know what? I'm giving my life to Jesus. We saw her baptized today. God was working his plan in her life, not just in those days, but in these days. <laughs> Peter would write in the book of 2 Peter, look, look at what Peter says, capturing the very heart of God. Chapter 3 of the uh, of Second Peter, he says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And man, let me just tell you, if you think I'm beyond hope, if you think Brooks, bro, if you, even, if you just knew where I've been and what I've done, God would have no reason to want me right? If you think I, there is no way I can be forgiven, there's no way I can earn this, there's no way I can get good enough. <clears throat> First of all, God knows what you've done. He knows where you've been and he stands ready to forgive you. If anything it had been too horrific for his forgiveness, he wouldn't have died in your place to begin with. 
And it's not about earning your way to him in the first place. It's not about jumping through hoops and trying to get good enough because we'll never make it. He said, you know what? Let me do this. You'll never get to me. Let me just send my son who's already perfect. Let me just send my son who will already do what's necessary. Let me just let him pay your bill. And when you lay down your sin and you trust yourself to him and you surrender yourself to him, let's just count the whole thing paid in full. Can we do that? (laughs) Man, oh man, I love preaching. Gosh. I'm telling you, because it, it's just up here in this moment, it's like God's preaching to me. That product makes sense to 99.9% of you, right? But what a beautiful truth that on the table for some of you today is the contrast of the old life you've lived, and God says, I got a new one. And I'll bring you into the family, but it won't come. Unless you quit trusting in religion and trusted in yourself and trusted in your mama's faith and your grandmama's faith and that you come broken and you, you confess your sin before me and invite my son Jesus to come in, forgive and take it all. And it's yours. But the choice is yours. You know, Luke did a good thing, didn't he? When he gave us this gospel. <laughs> he didn't just give us a story to read every Christmas Eve with our family, he gave us the message we needed to hear, that when we needed him most, praise God, he came. He came. He came. And he came for you. And the plan he worked in those days, he'll work in yours today, if you let him. Let's pray. Heads bowed, eyes closed this morning. No one looking around. We're going we're gonna to do our invitation a bit differently and going to ask everybody just to keep seated. Adam's going to come and play. You know, for some of you today, the worst thing I could do is share all of this and then not give you a chance to respond. That it, It's one thing to believe up between our ears and our mind that all of this is true. It's a, it's a vastly different thing as an act of our will to say, Okay, so I'm ready to act on this. And this morning, heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to give those of you an opportunity that if you've never given your life to Jesus the way that I've spoken of, and I'm not even going to try to talk you into it. I'm just going to kind of lay it all out there like I've done. You know if you're at a place where you're ready to just quit doing what you've always done and to just lay down the sin that you're already tired of. And you know if you're ready to just give it up and and say, Jesus, would you just forgive and, and take reign in my life? And if that's you today, right where you sit, you can just pray a prayer like this. There's nothing magical about it. It's just your heart. And you can say, Lord Jesus, I know that I need you. And I know that I've sinned and that my sin has broken your laws and that my sin has broken my relationship with God. But I believe today, Jesus, that you are God and that you died in my place and that you rose again from the dead and lived forever. And today is an act of my will. I, I lay down my sin the best that I can and I turn and I trust you, Jesus, and what you've done on the cross. And I invite you to forgive me and to wash my heart clean give me a new heart and a new life 
and that you'd save me and that you'd keep me forever. Thank you, Jesus, for your gift of salvation that has become mine today. In your name I pray. Amen. Lord, I thank you for those, maybe for the first time today, who have found life (laughs) and you start. Lord, I thank you for those who made this same decision maybe years ago and maybe just revisiting it has brought about a fresh awareness and appreciation for the fact that you've saved them in the first place, God. It's sometimes we treat it so nonchalantly, our salvation. Other times, like now, it just seems overwhelming, God, that you would do this for us. And so, Lord, in these next couple of moments, Lord, help us to just enjoy being in your presence. God, maybe to praise and worship you, Lord, in our own hearts. God, for this time of response, Lord, we just thank you. In Jesus' name.